Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we have Siobhan Harris. She's a certified integrative nutrition health coach, podcast host of Unsweetened Sio, and is certified in the Emotion Code. Siobhan started her recovery from sugar addiction in January 2018, and now that she is free, she is dedicated to helping others get free from their sugar addiction too. On her podcast, she shares her journey, both its victories and its challenges, plus she interviews other addicts in recovery, prominent sugar addiction coaches working in the field, and experts on numerous topics all applicable to recovery from sugar addiction. She offers group coaching around sugar addiction and incorporates the emotion code, which she tells us more about in our interview. Today, Siobhan shares how she works with volume eaters, how she was able to break up with the scale, how she works with clients to work around letting it go too. Also, why we must stop comparing our food addiction recovery journey to others and the importance of learning to trust our bodies and giving it time to heal. She shares some stellar tips for parents looking to reduce the amount of sugar in their kid's diet, and we asked her if she ever feels restricted in this way of eating. This is another great interview full of incredible takeaways that you can apply to your own food addiction recovery journey. Check out Siobhan's podcast, Unsweetened Sio, because there are 107 episodes of recovery inspiration. It might just be what you need to hear. Enjoy the show. All right, so we're just going to jump in. Today, we have Siobhan from Unsweetened Sio, and we're so excited to have her here because she's like also a partner in the podcast world. So Siobhan, can you share with us your story of like sugar and carbohydrate addiction? What was your aha moment? And when did you start to realize that sugar and food addiction could actually be a possibility for you? Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, so much for having me. I'm really excited. It's fun to be the interviewee (laughs) for a change. So thank you. And I love sharing my story. So yes, I am a sugar carb addict and probably have been, you know, my whole life. I remember from a really early age, even like four or five, kind of getting up before anyone else was awake in the house going downstairs and climbing on the countertop and into the cookie jar and eating as many cookies as I could before anyone else got up. And no one told me not to do this, but even at that age, I knew that that wasn't something that I was supposed to be doing. And I grew up in a house where sweets weren't off limits by any means. So it wasn't like I had to sneak them either, right? I could have had them, but I remember doing that. That's one of my earliest memories. And as I got older, I was kind of known as the family chocoholic, you know, lovingly, but really I was. People would get me for birthdays and holidays, just candies. And that would be like a totally a gift for me would be fine. Just some kind of huge chocolate bar. And then I would also, I have a brother and a sister and at holidays too, like Halloween, for instance, I would go through my candy in like, I don't know, two days, right? Like even from a young age, I could not just have one. I was never able to moderate and it would just be something I'd be thinking about even as a kid. Oh, there's that candy in there. You know, I couldn't let it be. And so I would eat all my candy and then eat my brother and my sisters too. And that goes for like Easter as well. Anytime we had extra candy in the house. Another story I always think about is those fundraisers that you used to do where they give you like a box of those candy bars that you would sell. Oh, I'd eat the entire box and then have to come up with the money somehow. And that was never good for me, those types of things. And I think we just all kind of laughed it off, not realizing really how serious this is. And now looking back, you know, I do come from a family 
rest of addicts, there's some addiction on both sides of the family. So it really doesn't surprise me. But as far as my own individual, like nuclear family, my mom and dad and brother and sister, I was really the only one with the food addiction tendencies. So, and that continued through my childhood into my teenage years. I started finally gaining weight. You know, I was a pretty skinny kid, but once I hit puberty, it caught up with me. And I remember a friend at that time started purging and I did, I tried to make myself throw up, but I just thought that was so gross. I wasn't going to do that. So I just ended up gaining weight and probably around like 15, 14 or 15, I started my first diet and which was really calorie restriction. Like I would eat like a Nutri-Grain bar a day or something in an apple or any of the fat free, you know, that was the fat free time too. So I'd eat like those snack well bars, fat free chips, all those things, still consuming a lot of sugar. And, but it really was restricting myself. So then I would lose weight, but that would only last so long. And then I would start binging and eating all these things. So it was, that definitely started that diet binge cycle that lasted decades then. And I would gain weight and I would lose weight. I was lucky that I was an athlete. So I was very, very active. So I think I was able to maintain my weight for the most part. But again, you know, went through college like that. And then into my 20s, kind of my later 20s, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. And that was the first time I started really wanting to look at my health in a different way. I went to see a doctor that said I could get on birth control or metformin, things that I didn't want to do. I, I just intuitively instantly, you know, just knew I did not want to go on medicine for this. So I started working with a naturopath. And that's when I started kind of cleaning up my diet a little bit, choosing more organic foods, eating more fruits and vegetables. But I was still going through those times that I was diet binging. And through all of this, I'm trying every single diet known to man from like the three-day juice diet to like Atkins, Weight Watchers, South Beach Diet. I mean, I've really literally done it all. And then all the exercise crazes too. For me, exercise has always been about my sanity, you know, not my vanity. I don't necessarily exercise to lose weight. It's more to keep me mentally happy, but I would try everything anyway. It was a big CrossFitter for a while. I did Orange Theory Fitness, a lot of the high intensity interval training stuff, but was still struggling with my diet. But things were starting to kind of... I was making some positive changes though, I would say. And one of my aha moments, I have like two really big ones, but one of them was when I was dating my now husband... I remember like he made chocolate chip cookies and actually to back up, like on our first date, we actually got into an argument about who liked chocolate more. And I'm like, who is this guy trying to tell me he likes chocolate more than me? Like, that's ridiculous. So he was a really, he's a big sweet person, but is a very different mentality than I am. As we found out when he went to make these chocolate chip cookies and they just come out of the oven. And of course I'm just starting to eat them right away and he's not eating them. And I'm like, well, why aren't you eating? Like, I don't understand. We just made these freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And he's like, well, I'm not hungry. I'll eat some later. And I was like, huh, what does hunger have to do with it? Like I had just eaten lunch like he did. I was totally full. I wasn't eating the cookies because I was hungry, right? And that just was such a big moment to me of really, like you save them for later. How can you do that? Realizing that wasn't even an option for me. And then we'd have these cookies and he'd eat say one later and we put the rest in the freezer and I could not rest until I've eaten all of those cookies. You know, it was like, Hey, we're in the freezer, come get one. I mean, I honestly could not think about anything else until all of those cookies were gone. And he found that very odd, you know, kind of laughed it off. Like, Oh, where did all the cookies go? I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe your roommates ate them, <laughs> you know, always blaming other people. And, you know, so that, and I would hide, you know, I'd eat things and hide wrappers in the trash can. I did that. You know, my mom said, even at an early age, she'd find all these candy wrappers like under my bed. Then as I got older, I got smarter. I'd at least put them to the bottom of the trash can, but I was definitely eating and hiding it, knowing that it wasn't really normal behavior, but I didn't know what to do about it. So at the same time, I'm kind of on this journey trying to help my, you know, cause I wanted to have kids. We got married and then it was a journey to have kids. I will say too, it took me a while. I do have 
two kids now, but really was trying to eat better, but still struggled. I eventually started, I went to the Integrative Institute for Health, IIN, in New York City, just an online course that I did to get my health coach certification, trying to help myself. Like, I was just like, what can I do to fix this? I had tried therapy everything, you know, hypnosis, any kind of alternative method, so many different things. Like it didn't sound how like crazy it was. I was going to try it. If there was some kind of, like I was looking for something to fix me every time, like a new diet book came out, I'd run out and buy it and read it because I thought maybe this is the one that's going to fix me. And a lot of the books I read, like it made sense to me, but I just couldn't keep eat. Like I couldn't stay on it no matter what, which was very frustrating because I can pretty much do anything I set my mind to. And this was one area that I was really failing in. So I went, you know, to IIN and learned a lot. I mean, I don't regret that at all. And I think again, more things were coming together, but they didn't necessarily talk a lot about food addiction. They talked about sugar and emotional eating and binge eating disorder. So, and this, I had gone to therapy for a long time about binge eating disorder. So again, I kind of doubled down on binge eating disorder and, and trying to eat intuitively. You know, I read that book about intuitive eating and it basically says in it, food addiction isn't a real thing. And at the time I was like, oh good, because I don't want to give this up. Anything that was going to say the contrary, that's what I wanted to believe in. So when I heard, okay, I don't have to give it up. I can eat in moderation. That sounded to me, like that's what I wanted to do, but I would kind of take a step forward and then take these steps back. So my second aha moment after doing all this and really probably hitting rock bottom was after getting my health coach certification, we got to go to New York City to do an in-person IIN celebration. Had all these amazing speakers there. It was all these health coaches all thinking the same things. And here I am already starting to coach clients, but myself struggling with sugar addiction still. Even though at that point, I was only eating like dark chocolate and I wouldn't at least go to the store and buy, you know, like a cupcake from the store with all the chemicals. I'd make it from scratch myself. That's how I was kind of progressing, being a little choosier about what I was eating and putting in my body, but still not able to control it or remove it completely. And we were there and we all went out to lunch to Whole Foods, like all these people. And I couldn't help myself, even though I'm surrounded by all these other health coaches, I had to get some kind of dessert because I needed a fix. I was literally like shaking. And then we'd get, you know, because it was all day and I'd get back and my husband came with me. We'd go see a show, like a Broadway show in the night. And I'd have to stop and get like M&Ms or some kind of candy just to get me through the day. And it really made me realize, oh my gosh, here I am certified and I still haven't gotten a handle on this. Soon after that, I read this article about food addiction. And again, this had I'd been kind of, it was in my head, you know, I knew about sugar addiction, but then I'd read the other thing saying that it wasn't true. And I finally read this article and I interview him pretty early on in the podcast. I actually interviewed him too. And he basically was someone that had been a recovering drug and alcoholic who said then he had to recover from sugar too. And that the recovery was pretty much the same in that he had to be completely abstinent and that you had to remove all sugar and all flour. And the flour piece was a little different for me. I had tried going no sugar. Like I'd done the whole 30 and I wouldn't do sugar. I wouldn't do gluten, but I would still eat some kind of flat, like if it was corn flour, you know, the gluten-free flours I was still eating. And I was still trying to substitute sometimes where I was using like agave or honey. And that would last for a little bit, but then I would just, again, it would just tumble out of control where then I was a pure binge. So I could like handle it maybe for like 30 days and then I would start binging. So something, again, it was no new information, but it was just at that time, all the puzzle pieces kind of fell into place. And I just realized that's me. I'm an addict and I'm never going to be able to moderate. I'm not a moderator. I have to abstain completely. And another thing that he said in the article was that you had to do it for a long period of time. Again, I would give it 30 days and then just give up. So I told myself that I was going to give it a full year 
I thought, you know, at this point I was 38. If I had been eating this way 30 plus years, there's no way a 30 day detox was going to fix what was going on. So I just really committed to doing it for a full year. And then I said, you know, if it doesn't work, I will just binge my head off for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'll give up, I guess, finally, but I really wanted to give it one more shot. So this article was that final aha moment of just putting everything into place and just realizing it doesn't matter if there's, you know, if it's not medically recognized or there's not really a lot of information about it. I know that this is true for me. And once I did start abstaining, it took about five months, I would say, before I started seeing some really big results. But by nine months, I knew I wasn't going back. I knew it wasn't going to just be a year. I knew it was going to be forever. And what I tell people even now is that for me, abstaining completely is so much easier than moderating ever was. You know, it was really hard in the beginning to go off of it and go through the withdrawal and manage the triggers and everything. But now it's still, I don't consider this a diet at all. It's just the way that I eat now. And it's so much easier than anything I've ever tried to do in my life before, because it's just so much easier than trying to just have one bite or just a little bit. So that's my whole complete story. Sorry, that was probably (laughs) too much information, but that's kind of got to where I was. Yeah. Not at all and not too much. And that definitely is not your whole complete story. There's still (laughs) all this time ahead of you. Not to mention, you know, at some point along the way, you get this idea, start a podcast. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about creating Unsweetened Sayo and how has that morphed your professional journey? And can you tell us about some of your most memorable guests and some of those takeaways? Because Clarissa and I know from experience, like we get just as much from this and these interviews as our listeners do. So yeah, can you kind of tell us that part of your story? Yeah, for sure. The podcast is 100% my accountability. So the other thing is when I decided to give up sugar and flour for a year, I looked into a lot of different programs. And just for me personally, the 12-step program didn't resonate with me. I couldn't find like a book that like there's a lot of books out there, but not like I wanted to read someone's like day-to-day journey, like what it looked like. So I just decided I was going to write my own book. And so every day for that first year that I gave up sugar and flour, I wrote on my laptop, like just on a Word document, kind of like a journal entry every single day for a year with the hope of turning that into a book. And it kept me accountable. Again, I don't recommend doing this completely on your own. And there are so many more more resources out there now, I would say. So you don't have to. But at the time, that was with my community, was writing this book for this future people that were going to be, that I was going to be helping. And that really kept me on track and kept me accountable. So once I was at that one-year mark, I actually went to the beach by myself to celebrate my one-year Sugarverse 3. And I was going to start editing the books. I hadn't read back on it at all. And I just had this idea to start a podcast. I thought, you know what? I'm not really a writer. When I really like sat down, it's so much easier for me to talk than it is to write. So I recorded that very first podcast episode. Episode one is my one-year sugarversary. I kind of tell my story and reflect back from the year and just kind of did it on a whim, really. And then I thought, oh, that was really fun. So yeah, I started doing it weekly. I take the summers off, but yeah, this is, I'm just, just today, my last, you know, my season three is wrapping and it continues to be the accountability piece for me. I feel like I love talking to other people about it. I love sharing my own journey and I love interviewing people. The earlier episodes are a lot more about me talking. It's kind of morphed into more interviews where next season I'd like to do a mix kind of back and forth. But yeah, there's so many memorable... It's hard for me even to pick There's so many people that I've gotten so much out of. I love to highlight other people's success stories. One thing that I say over and over again is I just don't think there's one way to do this. There isn't one size fits all. So my hope 
And what I'd always told myself is if I ever was able to help myself, I wanted to help other people. So that's really what the podcast is about, is a way to have resources for other people. I love that it's free. I love that you can listen to it over and over again. And I love sharing every other people's stories in case something resonates with my listeners. You know, you can kind of take what resonates with you, leave what doesn't. But the more people that kind of share their stories and their successes, I feel like it can reach more people than I could reach alone. Some of my favorite, you know, I love Bitten Johnson. You know, we all are Bitten fan here, but just the way she puts things, I always get so much. Every time I hear her, I listen to any podcast she's on. Anytime she speaks, I always get something new out of it. I loved probably really big highlight was having Dr. Robert Lustig on, which I know you guys interviewed too, just because again, I followed him for so long. So being able to talk to him about his book and just the way, again, that he puts things, it's just, and I love the science that backs it up. I also really had a, a UK dentist on this season, James Gulnick, and I loved his, everything he had to say too. And just from the perspective of what sugar does to your teeth and your mouth and your, you know, your dental health and how linked that is to your overall health. It's just stuff that we don't think about. I've really done a lot about kids too this season because I have a six and seven year old. So that's something that's really important to me and how we kind of think that sugar for kids is okay for some reason. So I had just have learned so much from every single guest that I have. Yes, I have a different takeaway. And I love to hear how people, even in their own success stories, what they're doing to manage their recovery and any kind of tips they offer. It's always something that resonates with me too, or something that I knew, but it's like, oh yeah. Like recently I was talking to someone about like some self-care stuff and I was like, yeah, I need to get back. You know, I've kind of let that slip a little bit. (laughs) So it definitely keeps me kind of in line too, hearing what other people say. And it's inspiring. I get so inspired by the people that I talk to. So if I am having kind of a blah day after a podcast, you know, I'm usually so energized again. So it gives me more motivation and just keeps me going. So yeah, I would say I probably get more out of it than other people do because I just, I enjoy it so much and I learn so much and I'm just inspired. And the other big thing is we're not alone. For so long, I felt like I was the only person in the world that struggled with this, with my inner family and friends. People just didn't, they would just be like, just stop eating. We don't understand, you know, like this isn't hard. And so to finally have people that speak my language and understand, and that's what I want to make sure no one feels lonely and like they're the only person, you know, forever. I thought I was just by myself. So I love having this community and network of people knowing that you're not alone. Yeah, I just love so much about what you had to say. And it's you're inspired by others. But Siobhan, you are so inspiring in listening to your story and how important it is for you to help others and help them find recovery. And we know that sharing the personal stories helps build hope. And in early recovery, we all need that. So I'm just so grateful that you are in this space doing what you do. And like, please don't stop because we love it. (laughs) Can you share with us? I'm sure I know you work with individuals. We have clients that often struggle with volume addiction as part of this disease. What strategies do you use with your clients or maybe some information you've received on your podcast over the years to help people overcome some of these concerns? Yeah. So volume eating is something that I personally, once I took out sugar and flour, I suddenly wasn't a volume eater. Again, I went for years thinking I had binge eating disorder, but the truth was I didn't binge on steak. I don't binge on vegetables. Like it was really fascinating for me that once I took out the sugar and the flour, I no longer was overeating. I just said that to someone the other day that it's been over three years now And I had like a really good dinner. It was like steak and green beans and some potatoes. And 
I ate that and I felt so full and satiated, but I didn't have to unbutton my pants. Like, and I was just saying for years, I don't have that bloated feeling anymore. I've eaten so much that, oh, you have to like unzip your pants to be comfortable. And that is so amazing to me to think because first that was just part of my life. I mean, I wore stretch pants. If I, I was in my like maternity pants are amazing. I wore them way too long after the babies were born because, you know, giving you kind of that extra stretch. I was very, you know, uncomfortable in the bathroom afterwards, you know, kind of digestive stuff just from all that stuff I was eating. I don't have any of that anymore, but I know that a lot of people actually that are volume eaters might just get help in getting out the sugar in the flour. They might find the same thing as me that suddenly it's not an issue anymore. But then for other people, I know that it is. And it seems to me from people that I've worked with and talked to, and this again, wasn't something I was interested in, but for other people, it is very helpful is weighing and measuring food. Some people need to do that. For me, that was more of a trigger, but some people, and that's why I just say this doesn't look there's recovery isn't the same for everybody you really have to find what works for you and what's sustainable you know we're all so bio individuals so what works for me isn't going to work for someone else and you really need to see what works for you so my first thing would be like give up the sugar and the flour first if you still feel like you're struggling with the volume, then maybe look at doing some weighing and measuring or even looking more closely at the food. Some people have to give up grains too. Some people have to give up fruit. I mean, we're all sensitive to different things, but I feel like if you can remove, I, for me, if I start feeling like I'm overeating a food, I kind of know, Hmm. Okay. That's my sign. That's probably something I shouldn't be eating. So I think that's kind of a good gauge too, as you're kind of experimenting first, just like my thing was, I'm just taking out the sugar and flour first. I'm not trying to diet it on top of it. I'm not trying to remove snacks on top of it. I knew that was going to be hard enough. So in the beginning, I did eat more grains. I ate things like sweet potato chips and some other things that technically, you know, didn't have sugar or flour in them, but probably wasn't, you know, the best choice. And then at any time, if I felt like I was starting to depend on those or eat them in a way that wasn't, I wasn't able to moderate, I knew that was something that needed to be looked at. So that would kind of be my suggestion, I think, there is see if you feel like you are having an issue moderating something, it's probably a food that you're a little bit sensitive to. Yeah. And I think that's really great, solid advice and certainly something we've given to our clients before too, you know, and, you know, you said some things that really made me think like that sometimes weighing and measuring can be triggering for people, right? It can bring back that almost diet mentality, that kind of thing. And so we're wondering is how do you help your clients break up the scale, like the body weight scale (laughs) and diet mentality? How do you help walk them through? Like, this is not about the focus isn't weight loss. It isn't these things. It's really about recovery from food addiction. Yeah. This might be like my favorite question. I have a whole podcast episode about why I don't weigh myself. And so I have not weighed myself since after my daughter was born, who just recently turned sick. So I have no idea how much weight I lost. I mean, I didn't weigh myself like right before. So a lot of people ask me that. And so during this whole process, I didn't weigh myself at all. So even what I found out like right before or right after my daughter was born was that you don't have to get weighed at the doctor's office. I don't know if people realize that you don't have to like that to me. I was like, what? I mean, I thought you had to, I thought it was mandatory. So that was like freedom to me. So what I would do, I go to the doctor still to this day. And they're like, you know, we're going to get your height and weight. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be weighed. And they're like, okay, you can actually say no. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if people know this. I just want to share that because I, that just blew my mind. And so since then I have not weighed myself because that was always so triggering for me. I would be one of those people that would go weigh themselves daily. I know people that weigh themselves throughout the day, but I'd be one of those people first thing in the morning, buck naked on the scale. And that could change. Even though say I had been eating well for a few weeks, if that number wasn't what I wanted it to be, or even went up a pound or something. And you know, our bodies, especially women, we fluctuate all over the place and it would just ruin me. And then a lot of times that would lead to be the thing that kind of led me to a binge. Cause I was like, well, you know, I guess it's not working. 
So for me, the scale mentality is just something like I say, like break up with the scale, just get rid of it. Even now, sometimes I feel really good. I feel really confident. I'm comfortable in my skin for the first time ever in my entire life. Am I perfect? No. I mean, I've had two C-sections, like, but I still, I don't care if I love and accept myself completely. And that to me is the biggest gift of all. But if I got on a scale right now, I guarantee you, it would mess with me still at this point. Like there's just no need. And the other big thing about the scale is I do not believe it's actually a good indicator of overall health. I think, you know, this is a tangent, but I just think our medical professionals, I think we do too much about the scale. It's just, there's other things that we should look at. You know how they say there's some people that are overweight, but they're actually really healthy. And then there's other people that might be the right number on the scale, but they're very unhealthy. So you can't just look at body weight or a number and that, you know, I'm only five foot two. So I think like I should only be like 110 pounds or something like I just feel like there and my body size, I'm more muscular. I was probably never going to be 110 pounds. So I think we all come in different body shapes and sizes and to try to all fit us. And I don't know, I, I do think it's really damaging, especially for kids and girls, especially at an early age, starting to think that they need to weigh because that's definitely at early age. I started weighing myself thinking I had to be 110 was the number that I always had in my head. So I encourage people, yeah, to give up the scale and to instead look at how you feel and focus on how you feel because that's so much more important. And you also can notice, like I know just that I lost weight because of clothing sizes. You're going to know, by the way, your clothes fit. And then it's the best feeling when you have to go down a size and then you maybe have to go down another size. Or even now, I've been pretty steady at the same weight for a couple of years now, just that I don't have to go out and buy bigger clothes that like, I don't have to stress at night. Like, what am I going to wear tomorrow? Because what's still going to fit? You know, at one point in my closet, it was like small, large, extra large. And then even like the impossible, like I'm never probably going to fit into those clothes that still had their tags on, you know, that I'd buy like, oh, I'll wear that bikini one day. And now I can actually wear all the clothes that I have in my closet and they fit continually. I just don't worry about gaining weight anymore. I've just kind of am steady at where I am. So I work with clients a lot on that in the beginning. And some people, it takes longer. You know, it's really hard for people to break up with their scale. That is really, really hard. And I also understand that. And as far as it not being just about the weight in the beginning for me, it was all about the weight. And I couldn't stand when people told me it's not about the weight. So I get it because I was there and it took me a while to realize that it's not about the weight. I mean, I am so happy that I've lost weight, but that's not the biggest benefit. That's just kind of a side effect of recovery. So I did start feeling that mental shift probably about five months in, but I think it takes a little bit of time for people really to grasp that. And I work with like Susan Miller is a good example. She's someone that we kind of chronicled on the podcast before her journey. And now she's a year. We just celebrated her year of sugarversary. She was a big person that had a way and was really worried about gaining weight and to see how far she's come and how that mentality has changed completely. It's just a perfect example kind of illustrating that whole process beautifully. And I think that one that a lot of people go through. So I get it if you're listening and saying, whatever, it's going to be about the weight. You're going to lose weight, but that's really shouldn't be the focus. It should be more on how you're feeling. And I do remember even in the beginning when I wasn't losing weight right away, I was super frustrated. So then I was like, oh, well, maybe I should be weighing and measuring. Maybe I should be doing this and this and always comparing myself to what other people were doing. Then I just realized, no, just keep going slow and steady. It is going to come off. But it felt like, how can I eat like one thing and like say in the past, I'd have one binge and I could gain like five pounds overnight. You would think that you could like lose weight that easily, but I knew that that wasn't going to happen. So I just had to kind of get those thoughts completely out of my head and trust in that my body, if given half the time, it's going to heal itself, but it needs the time. So I really kind of focused on that and started thinking about what's happening inside my body instead. Things that I cannot see 
but maybe can feel. Like right away, I wasn't feeling that bloatiness and the gas and the digestion issues. Starting to sleep better, I didn't have that uncomfortable feeling. And then I even started thinking about like, because a big factor for me was wanting to kind of sail through struggling so long with polycystic ovary syndrome and hormones, knowing I was entering perimenopausal years was, I don't want this to be terrible. So for me, knowing eating well is really important for hormone health and all kinds of things. Thinking about, okay, I'm no longer eating all these foods that inflame the body. So just imagining all these little switches for cancer, disease, arthritis, diabetes, just being turned off. So that's what I would really focus on is what was happening inside my body and knowing that for the long term, I was really setting myself up for better health. Even if you want to be more vain, like even about your skin, like I've right away saw a lot more just people would say, oh, you look glowing. Like, what are you doing? You know, just kind of changes that way. Even my hair started growing faster, felt thicker, those kinds of things. I just really focused on that. And then the weight loss happens, but it felt like then almost just a happy side effect. So that's what I kind of work with people on. But I know and I understand that in the beginning, it's that your brain is when you're still addicted to the sugar, it's really hard to think about anything else about the weight loss, especially when you're overweight and uncomfortable in your own body, which is where I was. So I totally get the starting point too. Yeah. And I think what you had to say was so important there to trust the process. And we hear this message over and over. And it's like Molly posted today, patience is an action. And so every day we have to wake up and focus on all those other benefits rather than just the weight. Because if we do focus on the weight, we're not going to be successful living the full recovery life that we are seeking. And so thank you so much for saying that. I, I There was so many takeaways from that. And I'm definitely going to listen to that episode of your podcast about it. Absolutely. So I heard you mentioning before about struggling with binge eating disorder and having, I'm not sure whether you sought treatment for that, but I'm sure at that time, all that messaging and especially with the intuitive eating books that you were reading and the dietitian's messages that eating this way is a restrictive way of eating and creates an unhealthy relationship with food. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's the exact messaging, right? Like, and that's why they say food addiction isn't real. So in that intuitive eating book, especially that's what it talks about is what you have to do is just go out and buy whatever your favorite food is, go out and fill your pantry with it. Because really it's more the scarcity concept. You know, if you feel like you have to remove it, then that's, what's going to cause a trigger. And that's what makes you binge. So honestly, I did that for like six months. I like peanut M&Ms, like you wouldn't believe did it go away? No, <laughs> like I still ate them and ate them and ate them and ate them. It did not matter. But yes, that's always the treatment is the moderation. And they're saying otherwise, yeah, removing it creates that diet mentality. And that is probably true for people that are just true binge eaters. I think moderation can work for people that aren't addicted to sugar. That makes sense to me. But if you're addicted to sugar, that's never going to work. You have to, I believe this 100%, you have to abstain completely from sugar and flour. And like I said, it was so much, you know, you think that sounds great. Just binge on as much food as you want because eventually you'll get sick of it and you'll just start eating like a normal person. That never happens. I mean, I literally gave that a good shot for like six months. I was even seeing an intuitive eating like counselor at the time trying to talk me through it. And finally, at the end, I'm like, I just, this isn't working for me. And once the only thing that worked was once I went off and abstained completely. And that was so much easier really than moderating all trying to just moderate all those years. So unfortunately, and that's to me is why it's important to get it medically recognized that this is a real thing is that people like me out there can get the treatment that they deserve and they need. What was so frustrating for me is that I really wanted to help myself. Think of all the money I spent on all these different things like therapies. And I was really trying to help myself but there wasn't anyone that was really helping me by identifying that I was actually addicted. It's just like, you know, trying to tell an alcoholic, oh yeah, just fill your cupboards with alcohol. 
And at one point, you're just going to stop drinking. It's just because you're thinking about giving it up. That's never going to work. And once I started thinking about it that way as an addict and thinking about it, well, yeah, you wouldn't say that to an alcoholic or you wouldn't say that to a drug addict. Why would that work for me? That kind of changed everything. And so I do really want to see it and hope that it is medically recognized. It makes me really angry, actually, that there's so many people out there, probably like me, wanting to help themselves, but just getting the wrong information and then feeling like it's, I was so ashamed, you know, like what's wrong with me that this isn't working when really it's the way our brains are wired. It's not a matter of willpower. So I think I'm hopeful that in my lifetime, we'll see this as something medically recognized. And that's why I'm so excited to be part of the movement that's going on right now. Cause I really do think it's picking up momentum. Yeah, for sure. And Clarissa and I are on the Food Addiction Institute board, and we have submitted proposals to the WHO and the APA to get them recognized for clinical diagnosis. It's a slow process, and there's lots of naysayers out there, as you can imagine, right? These dietitians and nutritionists who are backed by big food absolutely in their best interest to poo-poo our efforts for sure. But you're right. It's gaining momentum and we're getting louder. So yeah, thank you for that information because it's true. You know, and as Bitten would say, like, grow up guys, like grow up, just acknowledge that there could be this disease going on because you're going to help a whole lot more people and stop harming the ones that if we keep showing up and we just say, Hey, Siobhan, it's just binge eating disorder. You're just an emotional eater. Like just stop being scarce with the food items in your home, bring them in and it'll be whatever. And you're right. It's insanity to think that that's how that's being treated. So switching gears just a little bit, many of our clients, myself included, are parents. And so as a mom who identifies as having sugar carb addiction, how do you navigate feeding your kids without creating that diet mentality? You know, how do you navigate that toxic food world that exists with the advertising, parties, school lunches? Oh, Molly, I know this is something that just drives me insane how targeted kids are, how they're set up at such an early age to become food addicts now that I like look at it and how it's just so frustrating to me. And it was really important for me, even though I was eating sugar during pregnancy, I was eating sugar when I was nursing. Unfortunately, I wish I was one of those people that figured it out before. But even from like once we started feeding them, Solid foods, I was really knew that I wanted to do something different with them. And I was always really careful of what I ate in front of them and what I said in front of them. And even now that was part of my motivation too, is I wanted to be the best parent possible and set the best example. I never wanted to say anything negative about myself in front of them or talk about diets and I'm fat or whatever that kids can hear. So with my own kids, and this is something, honestly, we could have a whole separate podcast episode about and I'll probably, you know, talk to you about when I interview you later, but it's very tricky because of the way society set up and the culture of rewarding kids with food, especially. So we do not reward the kids with food. I really limit their sugar. But then my husband is someone on the kind of the other side that's like, but we don't want to limit so much that they become like crazy about it. So I kind of keep that balance in mind. So what I kind of thought, and one person I interviewed, Sarah Levite, talked about with her own kids, she really made sure she was controlling what they ate at home, right? And my kids are six and seven now. So really to like about age five, especially I was really limiting stuff. But now if they go to a birthday party, they know they can have one treat there. Do I love it? No, but I feel like there has to be some kind of compromise or else I'm afraid. I do remember growing up, there was a girl I went to school with that whose parents were complete like health nuts and they didn't let her have anything. And any chance she got, she just binged and went nuts, you know? So I I am a little bit afraid of setting that up. So I think I try to educate the kids. I think that's the other important thing is making sure when they are home, yes, they're eating healthy as possible, but then also really talking to them and educating them. Another interview I had was with Alex of Food Monsters, who has this game about for kids, it's a matching game about different chemicals that they call food monsters that are in food. And so we, the kids like 
we play that game and we talk about it. And then when we go to the store, say, and we're looking at like a box of cereal, that's like unicorn cereal. Of course, my six-year-old's like, Ooh, and you know, I don't even let them eat like, you know, any kind of cereal except very once in a while. So we're looking at the back and I'm reading the ingredients and they just start laughing. They're like, what is that? I'm like, exactly. If we cannot pronounce it, And then we see how many food monsters we can identify. And then we just look how long it is. You know, I'm like, we're looking for things with no ingredient. I'm like, then I pick up an apple and I'm like, what is this? You know, so I try to teach them early on in the store and just about reading labels and just how much healthy it is to have something without a label, like a whole food. So we, I think education is really important. I think that's something that's missing so much in the school atmosphere too. I wish there was more nutrition. Luckily, my husband is a principal of a school. So I've started a health and wellness committee and it's something that for next year, I'm really hoping that we also talk about eliminating sugar at like at birthday parties, at parties, and as a reward for kids. Like it drives me insane. At my kids' preschool, they did a big Halloween like trunk or treat kind of thing every year. And I literally got emails that said, we are in dire need of sugar and junk food. We are in dire need. And I was like, what? Like I, it just like killed me to read this stuff. We are not in dire need of sugar and junk food. So I think that schools can be really, really tricky. And honestly, you know, one thing I liked about COVID and being remote learn, you know, having a kindergarten and first grade remote learner, not fun. Let me just tell you. However, being able to just not worry about the birthday parties and the food was such a relief too. Because I am that odd parent that's like, tells the teacher, yeah, if you're having treats, can you let me know? I'll bring something else in for the kids. So that's what I try to do, but I don't want them to feel deprived. And so then they're going to like take anything that they can. Another good example is Halloween. Something that we started right away is the switch, Witch. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. So we do the switch, Witch thing. And so, because Honestly, this is the thing too. The kids get more excited about dressing up and collecting the candy. They could care less, honestly, about eating it. And I just think we don't realize that. They're so excited just to collect it. I let them eat one piece. You know, that sounds probably crazy to some people, but they get so excited. They get to pick out whatever piece they want. And then we leave it out. And then the switch, switch comes that night and either brings like a book or a toy and they just love it. They're so thrilled and they're happy with just that one piece of candy. So they still feel like they got a treat and then they got a book or a cool toy. And even like, I know some dentists do that too, where they, you can like donate your candy, but that's another thing is just some, like a, the dentist office and the doctor's office, two places that you would think are really on board with supporting your kid's health. Like every time my kids would get a shot, they would be offered a lollipop. I was like, no, we don't do that. Like, can they have a sticker instead? I mean, it just is like, what the heck? And then same at the dentist. Like, do you, like I sit there as the kids are getting their teeth cleaned and it's like, would you like chocolate chip cookie dough toothpaste, chocolate sundae toothpaste, like all the flavors of the toothpaste again, I'm like, come on, like, what are we doing? Like, can we just have, you know, even just like strawberry and grape and mints or something. So I feel like that is really, really hard as a parent to be up against. And then I do think it's better that kids from the most part, I don't let my kids have a lot of screen time either. Cause that's another place you just get inundated with commercials about food and things. I do like that even for myself and my recovery personally, that I don't watch like live TV where I have to worry about commercials anymore. I'm new on social media and it drives me nuts on Instagram. I get these ads like a Krispy Kreme, you get your show that you're vaccinated for COVID and get your free Krispy Kreme donut. And that just like popped up and I felt like assaulted. I'm like, how dare you put that on my Instagram feed? So it's out there for everybody. So, but 
kind of trying to bring this back is I would say, educate your kids from an early age, give them the information that you wish you had when you were younger, you know, and I do get sometimes, well, how come they eat that? And I said, well, their family's different from ours and they might not know all these things, but we know better. So we're going to do better. And they actually, you know, we don't drink juice. And I talked to them about that, let alone soda, of course not. But I just said, you know, and as you get older, it's going to be up to you guys to feed your bodies. And I also talked to them about my daughter did, we had ordered some Thai food with some extended family. And there was some like really crispy fried chicken, which they really haven't had. And she wanted to try it. So I gave her a little piece and then I didn't know, but she got more than just that little piece. And that night she had a bellyache before bed. And I was like, huh, you know, just like, you know, why do you think your belly hurt? And she was like, I'm like, what did you eat? You know, was there anything that you ate? And then she said, oh, that chicken. And I had more. And then she told me, I'm like, oh, maybe that was just too much for your belly. So putting that connection too of how they feel after they eat, not just like physically, but mentally. Oh, do you feel like a little like tired after that? And I think so talking through those things with the kids, but eventually the goal is that they're able to do this and navigate this on their own. And that's what I am getting to this point now that they're six and seven. I've done a lot of education education, but I need to then trust them to then make their own decisions for their own bodies. As they get older, I'll have less and less control, but I will make sure that in our house, we're continuing to eat healthy meals and continuing to talk about it. And then that way, if they go to someone else's house and have this or that, it's not a big deal, but I am very careful about just not also then making them go crazy whenever they can have it. So I do think it's a delicate balance. And I love talking to other parents about this because I do think it's really, really hard just in every birthday party, you know, you go to. So we just went to one recently and they had so many things. My kids know they can pick one treat of all the things. So they pick which one they want out of all of them. And then if they get little goodie bags when they go home and there's candy in there, we just get rid of it. They keep the toys and the stuff. And they've done that from an early age. So they're okay with it. And like I said, I get some pushback sometimes from them, but we just talk about it and talk about why. And you know, the last thing with that is how candy is everywhere too. Like Like we were at Home Depot. I'm like, why is there candy at Home Depot? I don't understand. I had to return something at Old Navy and my daughter and I went to, and there was candy in the Old Navy. And she's like, why do they have candy here? I'm like, exactly. You know, some of the questions my kids ask just crack me up. They're like, well, if this is so unhealthy, why do they let kids eat it? Why are they like marketing? I'm like, exactly. Why are they advertising this to kids? So I think that it's really good if you can get your kids involved, even in the cooking and all that stuff too, if you can grow a garden. I mean, the more they know about it and kids love to share, I hear them talking to other people about it. So I think giving them that knowledge, that's really empowering for the kids, but then also trusting and kind of letting go that they're going to need to navigate this themselves and kind of make better decisions for themselves and their own bodies. Yeah, I love that so much. And I just think it's so great that like you are also allowing them now to make those informed choices based on the education piece that you provided them with. And I have to say, after listening to your episode with the Food Monsters game, I bought it for my nieces and they always refer to me as like the sugar sheriff. But I think it's so important (laughs) as well to just make this education piece fun. And it's such a useful tool and those crazy monsters, they have quite the faces. So I really believe that it's so helpful when kids can visualize some of the these dirtier ingredients that are in our food. So I'm just thanks so much for all those strategies. So I want to talk to you about the other piece of work that you do. And you are a certified emotion code practitioner. Can you tell us what emotion code is and how you work with clients? in like helping them get rid of some of these trapped emotions? Yeah. So this is something that was so huge in my recovery. As most people know, you know, giving up the food is just the first part of the journey. Then you got to do something with all the emotions that you've been stuffing down with food for years, or at least that was me. You know, I didn't feel anything. I just stayed it away. You know, I numbed myself for so long. So as I stopped doing that, I had all these emotions coming up and a friend introduced me to the emotion code, which is a way of releasing trapped emotions that get stuck in the body 
And it's basically like the emotional baggage that we all have. And therapy, I think is great. I don't want to discount it, but it also, you can talk, talk, talk about stuff. And that's really helpful. But emotion code was the first thing that I did that then identified some of these trapped emotion and was a way to release it. And so on my journey, probably, I wish I had started earlier. I probably did that about a year in when I was introduced to it and just felt so much relief and saw so many positive changes in my life. I decided to go to a workshop and learn it for myself, which I did for about a year or two, working on myself and my family and my kids. And again, seeing these amazing things happening. And I just was getting so much out of it that I decided to get certified so I could start seeing and charging to see clients. And then that's been so amazing that I'm now getting certified in the body code, which kind of just takes it a step further of even getting into the different systems in the body. You could have like a tooth out of place. You could have a chakra that needs realignment. It could be a vertebrae in your back. It could be your kidneys. It could be your pancreas. There's so many things that when you dig in, it's so fascinating. And just the changes I've seen in clients have just been, I mean, amazing. You can go to the discoverhealing.com website. If you really want to learn more about the emotion code, it was created by Dr. Brad Nelson and that's his website. And he has some really good informational videos up there now kind of explaining it more. And he created it. He was a chiropractor that found that doing chiropractic techniques alone wasn't healing all of his clients. It did help a lot of people, but then he realized there was an energy component that was missing. And that's basically how he created this is and we're all made of energy and emotions are energy too. And getting lodged in the body can cause imbalances in your body. So if you're able to remove these emotions and remove this energy, things can really shift in a huge, powerful way. And that's what I have found in my own recovery and what I've found with working with a lot of other people. And I do work with clients that aren't, you know, I work with tons of people that aren't addicts. It works really well on pets too. So I have some clients that I just work on their pets and it works really well for children, especially because again, they don't have as much emotional baggage as we do as adults. So you really kind of clear stuff and can see some big changes right away. So I just feel like it's one of those tools we got to have in our recovery. You know, we all have this toolkit and this is one really huge one for me. And I've recently started offering group coaching around sugar addiction. I just did my first seven week group coaching program and we incorporated the emotion code into it. So I think that's a really powerful way, especially in the beginning. Like I said, I didn't get to witness that. And it was so neat to take these women through this first seven weeks and being able to incorporate that and really see some positive shifts right away. And I think it's just part, again, there's so many different things that you can do. The giving up the food is just the first part. Then you really need to replace, what are you going to replace that with? Like you were obviously getting something out of that. So then the second part of the journey is what are you going to replace it with? And also starting to feel your emotions. You know, they say you have to feel to heal. And now I feel like I can do that in such a better way than I was able to before. And I don't reach for food anymore. So to me, that's more freeing than even the weight loss or anything else. It's just no longer being bogged down by those thoughts constantly of what I'm going to eat or not going to eat. Am I going to be bad today? Am I going to be good today? Like my mind, like I can like run the world now. You know, if there was so many women that have these thoughts about food, if we could just get rid of those, I mean, think of the things that we could accomplish because we spend so much of our day worrying about these things. Like now I just think I have so much more energy to put into many more things than worrying about what I'm going to eat or not eat. So I'm really, really great for that. And the emotion code has just been a huge tool in getting me to where I am today and really helping with a lot of, it helps with physical, mental, it could be, you know, you could have blocks to abundance, for instance, you could have stuff going on in relationships. You could have, I mean, really it works on so many different things. So yeah, I highly suggest giving it a try and adding, seeing if that's something that helps you on your journey. Cause I do think it's important to find something. Like I said, everyone has to have kind of their own recovery toolkit and it can't hurt to try some of these different things that are out there. I just really believe in energy work a lot. And I think emotion code works well with other modalities. Like I do Reiki as well. I have Reiki done on me. I think it can work really well in conjunction with other therapies as well. 
Yeah, I've experienced several emotion code and at least one, if not two, body code sessions as well with another practitioner. And that's been the thing for me as I was like, okay, this is energy work, right? It's very different than it feel. It has a spiritual feel to it. It's certainly not something that I have to be actively engaged in. Like I'm present, obviously, and there are interaction pieces to it. But it also, there's something neat about it that I don't have to be, right? I show up for it, but I don't have to like be walking. I don't have to be, right, like doing something like that. So I certainly, I agree. It can be just another tool in that recovery tool belt for sure. So now I just want to check in. I know we've run you over on time. We have a couple more questions, but certainly we want to be respectful of that. So if you don't have the time, please let me know. Otherwise, I have a few more questions for you. I think I'm good until 1030. So, okay. All right. Thank you. So because you appointment, so, (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we want to make sure to give you some space for that too, but you just mentioned the seven week coaching group that you just started. Can you tell us what prospective participants might expect if they were to be able to get into like the next session that you would be holding? Yeah. So I'm going to do one in the fall again, because this one was really successful. This was kind of like the beta, you know, so we're going to make some tweaks, but really it was, you know, very, very successful, really powerful. I was going to do six weeks and then I threw in the bonus free seven week because I wanted one kind of prep week that was also like kind of a grieving week. And I talk a lot about this and in other interviews that I've done about how important the grieving process is. That was huge for me. As I say, like I actually play that song goodbye, my lover by James Blunt and just like cried, sobbed to it. So it's something that we kind of (laughs) do as an activity and some other people relate to like other songs. You might have a, a song that sugar hits you, but I think there is a grieving process because for me, it was like my best friend. It's where I turn to. And I think sometimes we overlook that. So I wanted to make sure that's kind of the first part, you know, is the intro and the prep and kind of building in some time for grieving. And what are we going to thinking already? Like, what are we going to replace this with? Because this is going to be a big loss. So even though we know it's not good for us, it was really there for us for a while too. We also like talk about things about how to manage triggers and emotions, self-care, joy care, how to deal with those naysayers out there going to the first family function, getting through holidays. I mean, all those kind of first things that we're doing, managing any kind of difficult situations, traveling, you know, now that people are are able to kind of travel again, how you do that and just kind of tips and advice along the way. And then just the power of sharing. I think that's why I wanted to do group coaching. I really don't do, I did individual health coaching for a while, but I find group coaching is just so much more powerful being able to share and knowing again, that you're not alone. I build in like accountability buddies too. So we do weekly calls, but we also have Facebook group where we're talking every day, but then people also have their accountability buddy that they're really kind of getting back and forth with every day. And I found that to be really, really successful. And then adding in the emotion code piece. That was kind of an add-on if people wanted to do that. And most people did. And it was just, again, so cool to see that dynamic, especially doing that emotional healing as a group. It was really, really powerful. It's another reason when I do emotion code, I work with some families where I'll work on like, for instance, I have, I work on a mom, two sisters and a brother and all individually, but the amount of healing that family has done together is just incredible. And I saw that a lot in this group coaching, just whenever you're part of a group. So really to see these amazing transformations. And again, like six, seven weeks is not, it's just the beginning, right? Of the journey, but it kind of helps people get there and feel in a lot more empowered position. And then we do have like kind of a Facebook group afterwards where you kind of get level up into that when that's just something for life then, or, you know, that you can go there and receive that day-to-day support. And I hope that people will continue with their accountability buddies too, and being able to really, really support each other one-on-one. Cause I do think that's really important. Again, not something that I necessarily had. And I think that for most people, it's really critical and just feeling part of a community too. Yeah, it sounds like that's a fabulous way to create connection as well as jumpstarts people's sugar addiction recovery. So where can our listeners find you? 
Yeah. So probably best is on my website, www.unsweetensio.com. Yeah. There's stuff about the group coaching. If they're interested, they can reserve a spot for the next program. So I also have my emotion code things on there. You can book online if that's something that sounds like it's of interest to you. And then I am on Instagram. I'm new kind of on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, on social media and all those links are on my website as well. Okay. Well, we oh, and my podcast, of course. Sorry, I forgot yes, about the podcast. Absolutely. I was going to say, well, we have all those links and we'll make sure that those <laughs> yeah. are listed Perfect. there. But yes, absolutely. Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Make yeah. sure to go listen. She has over 105 episodes. I mean, by the time this airs, there will probably be more. Um, yeah. And then, then you said season three is wrapping now. And then when yeah. do you start your next season? The so season four will premiere in September. So I usually just take like July and August off to regroup and rethink and very excited to have both of you on the podcast in the fall. So it's been a, already setting up to be a great season. <laughs> well, we're very excited to be guests. Thank you for that. Because like you said in the beginning, it's very interesting or different to be the interviewee versus the interviewer yeah. for sure. Okay. Our signature question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, carb, processed food addiction, what would it be? Yeah, that it's real. <laughs> that it is, it's our biochemistry. It's just the way you're wired. Nothing's wrong with you. You're not damaged. You're not broken. It's just the way your brain is wired. And it's actually really can be beautiful too. You know, I know Bitten talks a lot about that. She refers to talk to, you know, to other people that have this brain sensitivity because it can be really amazing too. But it is to just not give up hope too. You know, you're not alone and there is freedom from this. There is a way to manage this and life is beautiful on the other side. I've never been as happy and fulfilled as I am now at this point in my life. And I think for a lot of people, they don't know. And I, and for me, I wasn't sure if I gave up sugar and flour, if I'd be able to be as happy, I can't even believe how much happier I am on the other side. And again, how much easier it is for me to abstain than it ever was to try to to moderate and that, you know, you can really live the sweet life without sugar. It's complete and total freedom. I love that so much. Stop fighting and start feeling the freedom, right? Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much, Siobhan, for being on our show. It has just been such a fabulous interview and I just feel so inspired right now. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I love doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.